Have you ever wondered about Christians and suicide? We've had a tragic event recently, and the question has come up. Have you ever wondered about the role of women and Christian apologetics and the nuances that that introduces to the question around women, preaching the gospel, teaching men, equipping men, even pastors, in the area of apologetics. Have you noticed the trends in church planting um, and how they don't seem to really change? There's a theme that just continues to underlie our efforts when it comes to planting churches, not only around the world, but in our own country, in our own cities and towns. Have you wondered about the big screen TV preachers that are so in love with the sound of their own voice and think that they are just indis so indispensable that rather than planting churches around these massive metropolitan areas, they just can't find men with enough gift and talent to place over congregations. So instead, they pipe themselves digitally into those locations, and people basically sit in front of a massive television screen and call it church. What in the world is going on in American Christianity? It has become one of the most bizarre forms of the Christian religion across the world and in the history of Christianity. Welcome to the Reformed Rant. Today is Sunday, September the 15th, and we are going to continue ranting about uh, some things that have been coming up in recent news. And uh, I know I keep saying I'm going to talk about Arminianism, and I am, but I'm preparing to talk about Arminianism. So this is an impromptu rant. This is, I have really done very little prep here, I just uh, felt like, gosh, it's. I think it's been a couple of weeks already since I put up an episode, and I would like to, to fix that and, and rant a little bit more often. And so um, the the fix for that problem is a uh, an impromptu rant from me today. So I, I hope that it's a blessing. I hope that it's still provocative, that it still gets you to think about some of the things that are going on, and uh, I hope that it forces you to scrutinize uh, behavior and beliefs and claims uh, that are going on around you and around the country and in our churches, and that it would cause you to scrutinize these things and scrutinize everything I say in the light of the revelation of Scripture. Amen. All right, let's get to it. So if you heard that song, and just for those of you who may have never listened to the Reformed Rant before, I'm always throwing up secular music, but there's, there's, if you listen to the song, there's something in the clip of the song that is very much in keeping with the theme of the rant that you are about to hear, right? And so if you're listening to this 
and uh, you're wondering, gosh, is he talking about me? Well, if you are in a leadership position in the church and you're like probably 80 to 90% of our leaders in uh, the churches, uh, yeah, uh, there's a really good chance I'm talking about you. And uh, just in case uh, you, you, you wondered, if you're ever interested in actually having a conversation with me, either in person or on the Reformed Rant, would be happy to have that conversation. And that's especially the case if we agree on whatever the subject is and you just think we need to go uh, deeper, if you have a different perspective, or if you even want to challenge uh, anything that I'm saying on the rant as being unbiblical or not in keeping with the teachings of Scripture, I would welcome that conversation. Um, so, yes, there, there's that. All right, uh, so let's get to the... Uh, crux of my rant today, and you can hear my squeaky chair in the background. I don't know what to do about the squeaky chair because it's, it's simulated leather that's squeaking. It's not really anything that can be oiled, at least. Uh, if I oil it, I'm probably going to fall out of the chair. So, it is what it is. That's what you hear. So, uh, all right. Now, uh, I want to talk about the, the suicide... Um, issue that's come up, and I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because it's, my purpose is not, and you're going to see this if you listen to the Reformed rant often enough, my purpose isn't really to address the question of, of is suicide a sin. Um, there's no doubt that suicide is a sin because uh, it's, it's, it's murder. You, you do not have the right to take your own life. You do not have the right to say to God, I'm not going to suffer because I don't want to. And I get to say when it's over, right? So that that act in and of itself is a direct, um, and I'll, I'll add a little bit to this, is a direct is a direct rejection of God's sovereign control over our lives, okay? Now, I'm going to say this about that. There are cases where a person has uh, chemical issues uh, going on in uh, their cognitive faculties, in the brain, uh, and there is legitimate medical condition, conditions, where uh, people are suffering from mental illness, legitimately, legitimate, real, true, scientific mental illness. I'm not talking about psychological problems that people have where they're having a hard time coping with something, and it really has nothing to do with any kind of activities in the brain, but it has everything to do with their worldview, with their outlook, with their their deeply held convictions about how life is supposed to be versus how life is for them. That's not the same thing as mental illness uh, when I use the phrase mental. When I use the expression mental illness, I'm talking about a diagnosed medical condition that has real... Um, physical um, issues where, tangible, where there are chemical imbalances going on in the brain. Uh, that's not the same thing. Okay, now, now the, the, the pastor, uh, who the young man who took his own life, um, Jared Wilson, 30 years old, um, I don't know what the situation was behind the scenes. I don't know if the young man's depression was brought on by uh, tr a real true medical conditions in the brain, if it was chemical issues going on that he had absolutely no control over. Uh, I have n no idea. Uh, but I do know that there's been a lot said about it. Uh, my friend Jeff Maples over at Reformation Charlotte wrote about this, and there's, there's these, so there's some, some controversy around, is suicide apostasy, is apostasy suicide? Apo uh, suicide is, is, a, is a sin, um, and there's no 
there's no question about that. Uh, is it indicative of apostasy for someone to commit suicide? I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say yay or nay to that question. Uh, it is, it's, a, it's a very serious problem. It is, a, it is an affront to divine sovereignty when it is not the product of mental illness as I defined it a, f a few minutes ago. Okay, it is a serious rejection of divine sovereignty over a person's life when it is not the direct result of true diagnosed mental illness, right? If, if for example, there's no nothing in my brain that's leading to my depression, I'm just depressed because I didn't get the promotion, uh, because work isn't going the way I wanted it to go, because I, I'm going through a divorce, because uh, I lost a friend, because a child died, because my dad died, or what? Fill in the blank. I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm not satisfied with whatever part of my life that I really think I should be satisfied with. And, and that leads me to be depressed. Nothing chemical going on, okay? And I'm not a Christian counselor. However, I do believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And I do believe 100% that worldview matters. And I believe how we uh, interact with the Scripture and how the Scripture informs us and how we allow the Scripture to inform us has everything in the world to do with how we react to situations in life that are uh, less than satisfying in terms of our own expectations, okay? Uh, Christians believe that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God has decreed the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. In toto, God wrote the script. Christians believe that God is working in our lives for our good, the good of those who love Him, and for His glory. That means everything that, that's happening in my life, whether it's a job promotion or I missed it, I didn't get the promotion, or I didn't get that job that I wanted, right? Um, or something else even worse. I, uh, my wife's divorcing me. My husband's divorcing me without good reason, just fell out of love or found someone new, whatever the, the case might be. A Christian must look at that and understand that in every one of those situations, what, whatever it might be, from the severest of psychological and physical suffering to the, the most outrageous success that we're having, in a particular area of our life, that God is at work and that we are called to image Him in those situations. We are called not to forget God when everything is going wonderful, and we are called to honor Him and, and to be joyful in Him even when everything is falling apart. Okay? Now, back to... Jared Wilson. There's there's been some controversy around. Um, you know what should you say, what can you say uh, about a young man who, and when should you s say it? And there's uh, the view that it's harsh to come out and say negative things about someone who just went through. Uh, uh, something like this and that it's insensitive to him and his family. And I, I can understand and appreciate that sentiment. But this is an area in my view that needs to be, um, there needs to be humility on both sides of this fence. There needs to be humility everywhere, okay? Now, I may have initially thought, gosh, maybe this is not the time to say something. But even in my thinking about that, I, I had to go back to Scripture and examine the, what the scripture, how the Scripture might uh, 
talk about something like this or how the scripture might uh, inform us in terms of a, a, a tragedy like the Jared Wilson tragedy. So prior to Jared Wilson's death, uh, Jeff Maples wrote an article uh, about this and uh, he points out that Wilson looks like to me, based on the based on the quotes, looks to me like Wilson is one of these new young pastors who's embracing, was embracing an anti-biblical view on human sexuality. Uh, and there's a quote that Maples puts in. He says, I know I ha- uh, this is the quote from Wilson writing uh, in two th- 2013. I know a handful of people, says Wilson, who are gay. They go to church and, in fact, show the presence of Jesus' love more than most self-proclaimed straight Christians do. And then he puts in parentheses, let that sink in. All right, so so this represents at the most fundamental level that that this pastor uh, did not understand what it means to have the presence of the love of God abiding in the life of a human being. Um, It isn't being nice to people. It isn't speaking softly to people. It isn't avoiding offending people. It isn't playing, it isn't being politically correct. You see, in modern American culture, political correctness is now identified with having the love of Jesus, speaking to people in ways that are politically correct and avoiding any kind of hint of offense is now viewed as uh, being kind and being nice. Even though if you look at the scriptures, we don't see that in scripture. We see the exact opposite. We see Jesus calling people vipers and snakes and uh, all kinds of adjectives used to describe uh, false teachers and false religious hypocrites who were dispensing with the Word of God and inventing their own rules and their own system for how someone should please God. Uh, And we see the very same thing happening today. It's been happening since the fall. So as we look at this, you know, is it okay to point this out? Well, if you look at the New Testament, Acts chapter 5 tells the story of Sapphira and Ananias, a couple who had given a tremendous amount of money to the church. They sold everything they had and gave half of it to the church. All right, now if you would if you would say that there was anyone who had the, the presence of the love of Jesus in their lives, it would have been this couple because of the incredible generosity that they displayed in the church. Half of everything they sold, they gave to the church. Little problem though, you see, they lied to the Holy Spirit and God killed them both. God killed both of them. They gave an extreme amount of money to the church, but they lied about it. They wanted, they did it to make themselves look like they had the love of Jesus in them, right? They, but they held back half the funds. And Peter said, look, this was yours to begin. Why did you do this? God killed him, right? Elamis the sorcerer was stricken with blindness because of his foolishness. Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, said that there are a number of you in your churches, a number have died because they approached the Lord's table in an unworthy fashion. In other words, they are not taking the violation of God's law seriously. They are not taking sin seriously. Right? We seem to want to be nicer to people, even people who contradict God himself in situations like we're in right now with, with Jared Wilson, then we, then we are respectful toward God. We want to be nicer to people, even false teachers, than we want to be respectful to God. So we we give people a pass on all kinds of disobedience and ignoring of God's word, and we chalk it up and we wink 
and we just say we agree to disagree and we let people get by with it. We don't take a firm stand. And we call it being loving. We call it being charitable. We call it being kind. And it isn't. It's being a coward. It's not loving God to the degree that we should love God. How can we not put our best foot forward? I'm going to come back to that. All right, so so to, to sum this up in, in terms of what's going on with, with Jared Wilson, it is, a, it is a great tragedy. I don't know Jared Wilson, never, never met him. I have never listened to a sermon. I have never read anything that he has written other than the quotes that I see in front of me over Reformation Charlotte, which if, if they are taken in context, and I have no reason to think that they're not, paints uh, Jared Wilson as um, one of the many modern evangelical Christians who are doing uh, everything they can, many of them, to import homosexuality into our churches, um, many of them. And then in many cases, we have evangelical leaders who are in positions in their churches as pastors and elders and leaders who see this happening and who are doing absolutely nothing, nothing to oppose it. Zip, zero. They won't, direct, they won't address it directly. They ignore it entirely. They know it's wrong. They know that it's bad for the church, but they won't address it. They flirt with it. They play around with it a little bit. They might even affirm that homosexuality is, is a sin. But what they will not do is point to the activities of these other leaders in the churches that are doing everything they can to change the church's view on human sexuality and, and rebuke it. They will not do that. And that is amazing to me. So if this is the case with Jared uh, Wilson, if if the young man uh, actually believed this, and there's a there's another another quote that says um, he says I have uh, I have family members who are gay, I have friends who are gay, I know people who are questioning their sexual identity. So what do I do? I show them love and grace as Jesus would. Well, if you if he showed them love and grace as Jesus would, he would have he would have told them that they have to repent and submit every desire to God, to God's law. Repent and believe the gospel. Submit every desire, every belief, every thought about yourself should be lined up with what God says about you. And it's not just a good option. It's not just a good idea. It's not just the best option. It's the only option. Otherwise, you're in rebellion against God and just so you know, if you're in rebellion against God, sooner or later, there will be hell to pay. Sooner or later. God is not your best choice. You have no choice but to bow your knee and confess that he is king, Lord over all. And you will either do that now or you'll do it later, but there is no question you will do it. I suggest you do it now. He says, um, Maples quotes, quotes Wilson. I guess he wrote a piece on uh, Caitlyn Jenner for, uh, for, titled Four Reasons Jesus Would Invite Caitlyn Jenner Over for Dinner. I know that Jesus would welcome Caitlyn Jenner to his dinner table without question. I believe that anyone who calls themselves a Christ follower is called to reflect an image of, similar, an image of similarity. An image of similarity. Here are a few reasons why. Right. So he says Jesus is love, grace. Jesus is impartial. Jesus welcomes sinners. Well... <clears throat> Uh, and here you have not even half the story. When Jesus came and ate with sinners, he called them to repentance. He did not affirm them where they're at. All right? So I would say to anyone, if you want to invite Caitlyn Jenner, Caitlyn, I'm not even going to call her Caitlyn, if you want to invite Bruce Jenner to your house, Caitlyn the guy, Caitlyn formerly known as Bruce Jenner, 
if you want to invite that man to your house and have dinner with him, and you want to show him love, and you want to show him grace, then you had better call him to repentance and faith. You had better call him out of his error. You had better directly, directly call out his sin, you see. So here's the thing. Jesus shows up and he goes into the houses of sinners and he calls them to repentance. He does not affirm them in their sin. We live in American culture where people like Bruce Jenner know what the message of Scripture is. They grew up in America. There have been fundamentalist preachers preaching about repentance and faith for decades since this country was founded. You're not talking about a country where the gospel didn't exist. You're talking about a country where not only has the gospel existed, but many of the principles and laws and rules uh, in our culture are based on principles that come out from the teachings of Scripture and Christianity. This is nothing new. Right? This You're talking about people like Bruce Jenner who know the truth of God, who've been told, who've heard the message of God, and who have given God the middle finger. This is not the same environment that we, we see Christ entering in in Israel 2,000 years ago. It is different. Jesus brought the gospel for the first time to these people. Right? This same Jesus said to his disciples, if you go into a city and they reject you, shake off the dust of your feet. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for that city. Wow. That's the Jesus' love, Jesus' grace kind of Jesus that we serve. He is not just full of love, full of grace. He's righteous and just in every sense of the word. Imagine that. All right. Yeah, so much for an impromptu rant. Let's shift gears. Another thing that I want to turn your attention to now is is uh, the 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 lack of conviction in in our leaders in many of our churches. Uh, we're flirt, flirting with egalitarianism in the churches um, all over the place. So not only are we, are we flirting with the homosexuality nonsense, we're flirting with egalitarianism to the point that we are now starting to see women go to seminary and, and get trained in apologetics and think that they are called now all of a sudden to, to go out and preach even to men. That's, and they're going into churches and preaching. We, we may call it teaching apologetics. Well, I got news for you. If you don't think that a woman should preach, then she also shouldn't be involved in teaching apologetics, especially to mix, mixed groups. Now, I've already said that I don't think uh, that women are gifted to teach are equipped by God and gifted by God to hold formal teaching offices in the church in any way, shape, or form. Period. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I see it in modern America. It's everywhere in modern America. And I understand the reasoning. I know the argument. I don't care about the argument. What I care about is the exegesis. What I want to do is look at what the text says about the offices in the church and those who are gifted to function in certain ways in the church. And the offices of teaching and pastoring and overseeing and leading in that fashion in the church, in the New Testament, are reserved for men, not women. 
but yet we have women who are not only engaging in going to seminary and getting their degree in apologetics so they can become apologists, they're teaming up with men. And they're teaching mixed groups. And they think there's nothing wrong with it. And as a pastor, if you have that situation going on in your, in your church and you're convinced that women are not called to preach, then they're not called to do apologetics like that either. Now, if they want to become equipped to share the gospel when they're out speaking, especially with other females that they're friends with, I don't have a beef with a woman equipping herself to think about how to give an answer for the hope that is in her when she's interacting with other women, which is where this belongs. It does not belong in, in women setting up themselves as teachers and going out even to other countries and training pastors, going into other churches and teaching mixed groups on apologetic method, how to defend the faith, or setting themselves up, even leading a woman's class in church, teaching something like this. It's a real problem. Now, another problem, and this is a problem I think that everybody uh, needs to, to think through. So, okay, I am a presuppositionalist. I uh, wholeheartedly embra embrace Cornelius Van Til's method. Mike Butler was my mentor uh, in studying uh, presuppositional apologetics. Greg Bonson was his mentor. Cornelius Van Til was his mentor. So I'm pretty entrenched in, you know, don't take that to mean that I think that I'm uh, some whiz kid. I am not. Uh, I just say it to, to point out that I'm, I'm pretty sold on the method of presuppositional apologetics. I'm pretty set in my ways when it comes to this method because it is the only method that consistently seeks to honor God in how it provides an answer to skeptics that would come along and challenge the truth claims of Christianity. Pretty simple. But if you're, if you're in leadership and you're presuppositionalist and you know that Reformed theology is the most consistent, accurate expression of biblical Christianity and that presuppositional apologetics is the most consistent method of apologetics for that expression of Christianity, why wouldn't you be very hesitant to allow someone to teach the classical approach to Christian apologetics. Now, okay, I get that there are good people, R.C. Sproul was one of them, who embrace classical apologetics. I get that there are good people who are using the method. All right, that's not, that's not my point. I disagree with the method. I think the method, when it faces the right kind of skeptic, gets pummeled. I think it gets destroyed because it's not consistent with biblical Christianity. I think eventually what's going to happen to that apologist is they're either going to have to give up apologetics, find a different method, or they're going to compromise even more on biblical Christianity. And what I see happening in many cases is the latter. These apologists go out and they're, they're doing a good thing. They're trying to defend the Christian faith. But they have a theology that's skewed. They have a theology that is not consistent with what Scripture actually teaches about the nature of God. And they run into a skeptic who starts hammering them. And rather than back up the truck and consider, maybe my method is really off. Maybe my theology is really off. They end up bending their theology even more in an attempt to defend Christianity, keeping with their apologetic method. And the result is typically disaster. In fact, in many cases, these people head off into outright heresy. Right? That's a concern. If you're a leader in the church, you don't want that, right? If you're a leader in the church, what you want is an apologetic method and a theology that reflect what you think the Bible teaches. If you're a Calvinist, if you're Reformed, then I would, I would think that you would be very hesitant 
to allow someone to teach anything contrary to Reformed theology, even though you know you may have deacons and other folks involved in the church who are uh, Armini- more Arminian-leaning in their view. I'm not saying you throw these people out or that they're completely useless or anything like that. That's not my point. My point is you're putting people in front of folks that you're responsible for. You are responsible for those people. I'm not responsible for them. You are, pastor. You're responsible for them. So when you stick an Arminian in front of them, and he starts teaching them libertarian free will, and it starts causing them to compromise on the essential, the, the attributes of God, the nature of God. Guess who's responsible for that? You are. You're the one who put the leader in place and let them do their thing. You gave it a wink. You were politically correct. You didn't want controversy. You didn't want tension. You didn't want conflict. And now you have people who are embracing ideas about God that are outright heresy because they chased them to their logical end. And when God starts asking questions about that, I would not want to be the one who to stand in front of him and say, well, yeah, I knew this person wasn't really on the same page, but I didn't think it was that big a deal. Really. It's a big deal. It's a massively big deal. All right. I don't know how you can argue against women pastors and preachers and permit women apologists. I mean, how does that work? I would love to hear the gyrations. Maybe I wouldn't. Maybe it would just, I've got a bit of a headache today. Maybe it would just make my headache even worse. Let's shift gears away from this to the church planting ideas. So I was looking at something over the weekend that really kind of got me a little bit. A couple of things, and I'm going to close this up. How much time do I have left? So much for an impromptu short rant. I just can't seem to be short no matter what. Okay, so I stumbled upon a uh, ministry, we'll call it, an organization. I'll call it an organization. I'd rather call it an organization. Um, as a result of looking at a particular church plant that I'm familiar with. And this organization is mentioned on the website. And there's some activities that are taking place that are not, I'm not going to call them like off the chart, terrible, terrible activities, but they're red flags to me. They're the kinds of things when I see them in a church that make me go, huh, it's time to look closer, right? That's just my nature. Look closer when I start to see these signs, these red flags. Small red flags turn into big red flags. Well, I stumbled into a small red flag that has now turned into a big red flag. The name of the organization is Christianity Explored. And the it, it really, and I have not looked at this organization as thoroughly as I could, and I, I may look at them a little harder later. I don't know. I just, I don't know, right? I'm a working stiff. I have a, a real job that's demanding, uh, and I have other things going on in my life that uh, are duties, obligations, responsibilities, and even uh, things like music that Uh, I have ignored for years, and I'm not going to ignore any longer. So, as I looked at this, the first question is, what is Christianity, right? What's it all about? Now, this turned out to be some sort of a promo that's three minutes and 11 seconds long, and it's it's clips of a movie, and I I don't know what movie. I know Angelina Jolie is part of this clip. This is This is a promo on a Christian website that asks the question, what is Christianity? And it's it's a Hollywood movie clip with people like Angelina Jolie in it. Red flag, right? I mean, it would be, should be, red flag. What in the world is this, right? So I want to know the answer to this, this question, right? And so why did Jesus come? That's a really good question. Who was Jesus? Another really good question. So on the why did Jesus come 
question on their website, ChristianityExplained.org. You can look it up and go explore this website for yourself. All right. Now, uh, Jesus came first to be rejected. And this is, I'm just, I'm going to stop. Uh, on the, there's three, to be rejected, to be killed, to rise again. I'm going to read a little bit of the first two. Um, I'm not going to bother with the third one just because of time. The first one, to be rejected. Many people rejected Jesus. The, 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 that's why he came. Many people rejected Jesus. They thought they'd be happier making their own rules and living outside his kingdom. This rejection of the king is something we all do. Jesus called it sin. It damages our lives and will eventually leave us separated from the joy of being in the kingdom. God won't let those who reject the king live with him. So we face what Jesus called hell, an existence without anything good forever. Okay, so that's how hell is, is defined by these guys. Um, and if you look at the scripture, hell is defined in incredibly different terms. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Outer darkness, eternal damnation, right? Uh, so this language is not even coming close to describing, first of all, how the Bible describes hell. And second of all, there's a ton here that could be op left open for interpretation. So what are they doing? Right? Now, technically, somebody could read this and say, well, it's, technically, it's, it's true. It's accurate. Well, maybe it is somewhat true and accurate, but it's incre incredibly nebulous, incredibly vague. And it's that way on purpose, and that's my problem. It's that way on purpose. Okay. Now, I don't know if these people believe in the eternal damnation where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and people are tormented uh, away from the presence of God in the flames of eternal hell forever or not. I have no idea, no clue because of the language they decided to use. Another issue that I have with this description of Christianity is that Jesus came to be killed Right? And at the end of the paragraph, it says, The sinless king died to take the punishment sin deserves. The punishment sin deserves. The punishment sin deserves. So let me help you understand something here, folks. There can be no sin without a person committing it. Right? Sin isn't what's punished. The person committing sin is what's punished. Let's be clear about this. They take, the, they take the individual out and they stick the abstract concept of sin in its place because it doesn't feel so, so in your face, right? I mean, this is pernicious in my view. And then the next sentence says, Jesus was opening the way into his kingdom. Is that what he was doing when he died on the cross? He was just opening the way into the kingdom so that you could decide whether or not you wanted to go in or not. Is that what Calvary really was? Is that what biblical Christianity teaches? Is that what Christianity is? Is that why Jesus came? To open the way. Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't say, I'm going to show you a better way, like Gandhi may have, like a guru would have. He is the way. He didn't open a way. So here's a, a site, an organization that holds itself out to be a primarily a missionary organization that's being used by Southern Baptist churches, evangelical churches, around the world. And on their very basic question, what is Christianity? They can't even come close to getting it right. And what they do have is nothing more than dressed up political correct correctness. And it is, it is a slight to the gospel. It's embarrassing. No church worth its salt should have this posted anywhere on their internet, nor should they use anything 
any materials from a site like this who can't even get Christianity right. It's a problem. Now, to the leaders, if this is on your site, if you're pointing people toward this, if you're using this stuff, there's going to come a reckoning someday because you're not doing your job. You're not doing your duty. I'm not calling you a heretic. I'm not saying anything other than you have a job to do. Paul laid it out in Acts chapter 20 when he talked about the fact that it was you that's responsible for standing between the sheep and the ravenous wolf. You, that's your calling. Basic 101, pastor, elder, leader, teacher. Stand between the sheep and the ravenous wolf that wants to tear that sheep to shreds. That's your job. If you don't do anything else as a pastor, you must do that. And on the flip side, you can do everything else under the sun as a pastor, but if you don't do that, you are not doing your job. You are in dereliction of your basic fundamental duty as a pastor and elder before God. And it is a big deal. Pretty sobering. All right, I'm going to stop there and shift gears to Jacksonville First Baptist. This is the last thing I'm going to talk about. And this impromptu rant is going to end up running almost an hour. I cannot believe it. I, gosh, what can I say? All right, so let's go over to FBC Jacksonville. Heath Lambert. I saw a tweet out about this over the weekend, and another tweet about foundations and practical living, which I'm going to, I'll close with, with, with that, and then we'll be done. So, uh, my wife has an aunt who is a member of First Baptist Jacksonville, all right, and my wife used to be a member of First Baptist Jacksonville when uh, Jerry Vine uh, was the pastor there, grew up in that church. So First Baptist Jacksonville is not a church uh, that I have absolutely no idea about. I have a little bit of a connection here. So apparently this church owns, I don't know, 13 city blocks of property or something in Jacksonville. Over the years, it's in, it's in, it's in the downtown area. People aren't coming into the inner city uh, to go to church, and the membership has been dwindling. Uh, and so now there's a problem with, uh, and my understanding is they really don't have a ton of debt, if any. Uh, I think they own most of this stuff. I could be mistaken about that, but this is what I understand. The problem isn't the mortgage. The problem is upkeep on this, and this is what the pastor said in the video. So I like the, overall, I like what the pastor's doing. Let's get rid of all these properties. Don't need them. Not sure what the heck we're doing with them. What really does it have to do with, with being the prophetic voice of God in um, Jacksonville, Florida, uh, where the, the church should be preaching the gospel and baptizing converts and making disciples. Don't know. All right, so they're peeling all this back. They're going to sell off all this property. And I'm watching this video, and I'm like, hey, this is pretty good stuff. You know, this is the, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world to me. If I were there, I would be like on board. Yeah, let's do this. But then at the very end, the pastor talks about the new vision. So they're going to sell off all these properties. They're going to refurbish uh, maybe one or two or three buildings that are right there in one block. Uh, and uh, then they're going to launch uh, satellite locations around the city of Jacksonville. Now, what I do not know is if those satellite locations are going to be real churches that have other elders teaching and preaching there on Sunday mornings and, and Wednesdays or whenever else they're having service. Or if the pastor thinks that he is so indispensable and so gifted and so talented and so essential to the body that he has to pipe in his sermons on a big screen to those other locations because no one else can do it quite the way he can and be as effective as him. I don't know. Uh, I do know that we have J.D. Greer who follows that model. And obviously, if I were to accuse J.D. Greer of thinking that way, I would really be interested in hearing how he would um, defend himself. I mean, 
why do people need to gather 30, 40 miles away from you, sit in a chair, and watch you on a big screen TV? Why can't one of the elders be the shepherd of that body and stand in front of the congregation, a man who is trained, and bring forth God's word? Oh, he doesn't have the celebrity. He doesn't have the charisma. He doesn't have the personality. He doesn't have the looks. He just doesn't have that chemistry. It's the, it's the narcissism in these guys that, run, that just absolutely drives me nuts. And it's not just the narcissism in these guys. It's the fact that we feed that demon because of how we treat them. Like we, we treat them like celebrities. That's part of the problem. Just look across the Christian landscape and see who has a voice. Look across American politics and see who has a voice. It's the celebrities. It's not the guy who has 140 IQ, who's been trained three ways to Sunday to speak about this issue that people pay attention to. doesn't matter how much experience or education or wits this person has in that particular area. Their qualifications doesn't matter. If the person is a celebrity and has been in a movie or everybody knows who they are, then automatically that person gets the ear of the American public. It's the same way in the church. If you've got the charisma, you've got that chemistry, you've got that personality, that, that attractiveness, right? whether it's physical or otherwise, people are going to listen to you, you see. Mushy-minded, brainless twits make up American culture for the most part, and they make up a ton of our evangelical churches. And it's why these guys are enabled the way that they are enabled. I don't know what Heath Lambert's going to do, so I'm not saying he's going to do this. I'm hoping that's not what he's going to do. I'm hoping his plan is to put elders in those satellite areas and and to, to reach people in those communities with their own church. That would be impressive. That would be, wow, stand up, applaud Heath Lambert, if that's what's going on, right? But if not, if we're going to put just big screens up, then forget it. You don't get a clap at all. You get a big thumbs down. Bad idea. All right, so I saw another tweet come out talking about foundational theology and, and living out your faith, right? So uh, foundational, your foundations are useless if you don't, uh, if you're not practicing your faith. And I understand that's absolutely true, right? But here's the thing. You don't have anything to live if you don't have a foundation. And from where I'm sitting, what I see going on, and I've been around in the churches for 40 years. 40 years now, I've been in the way. And from New York all the way down now here to North Carolina. And I don't know how many churches, but enough. Small churches, big churches, several big churches. And I see the same thing everywhere I go. Everywhere I go, I see the same thing. The thing about living out your faith is that without foundational theology and a focus on foundational theology and a, an, an intense, intense emphasis on foundational theology, there's nothing to live, guys. You don't have anything to live. You can't live it out if you don't have your foundation in place. Right? So when it comes to the order of things, foundations come first. You teach and train first. Before Jesus sent the apostles out, he trained them. Before the apostles started writing the New Testament scripture, they had been trained by the master himself. Right? Foundations come first. And it's always interesting to me because the people who are always emphasizing living out your faith seem to be the very same people who, who ignore, don't give hardly any attention to the importance of the foundations. Because think of it this way. It's just like a building. Here's another one of Ed's analogies. You go out 
And you, you go to New York City and you see the Statue of uh, Liberty or you see the, the World Trade uh, Building that's now in place. I don't know what they call it. You see the Empire State Building. You see all of these things that are above ground, right? They are shiny. They look impressive. They're interesting. Wow. They just wow you. No one goes to these sites other than engineers and says, well, I would really like to get underneath this building and just kind of take a look at the foundation. Boring, boring, very boring, right? Well, when you have churches filled with false converts, I'm not going to call them even nominal Christians because there really isn't any such thing as a nominal Christian. Those are the ones, remember in Revelation, that, that get spewed out of God's mouth, okay? Those are the ones that won't be around. So, uh, when you think about this, Foundations to false converts, foundational theology, the, 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 the tradition, the core faith that's handed down from the apostles, right? Apostolic tradition, the scriptures, boring to them. They don't want anything to do with it, right? What they do want to do is do the shiny stuff, the stuff that makes them look like the real deal. I can go to the food bank. I can go here and do this. I can get involved in this ministry. I can coach the softball team. I can volunteer for this, that. and You do all these things, and you're serving, and you look like such a wonderful Christian. But you're never around when it comes time to roll up the sleeves and understand the true nature of the true God that you say you are seeking to please. How fascinating is that to me, but I see it everywhere I go, okay? Don't ever pit foundational theology against living a godly life. Bad idea. Why? Because they're both necessary. And don't ever pit living a practical godly life, practicing your faith, against foundational theology. They're both necessary. It's not either or. It's not this one's better than that one. It is true that practical living is contingent on getting that, that foundation underneath you in the order of things. The foundation does come first. But you cannot neglect the faith. You cannot neglect love. You cannot neglect service. You cannot neglect living out the faith just for the sake of focusing only on foundations. Right? There is a time when you grow beyond that. You've got the foundation under you and you are good to go. My criticism is basically this, folks. Our pastors are not focusing on the foundations. Errors, small, big, medium, and even in some cases borderline heresy are being ignored for political correctness to avoid conflict. Uh, people are being led to believe that they can do these things that they really shouldn't be doing. They're putting themselves in harm's way, and it's a problem in our churches, and it's going to continue to be a problem in our churches so long as our churches are made up as, uh, of, of as many false converts as they are made up of. It's going to continue to be a problem. Thank you for listening to the Reformed Rant. Uh, if you want to leave a message, uh, you can do so if you are listening to the rant on the Anchor app with your phone. If you uh, are interested in interacting with us, then run over to uh, Reformation Charlotte's Facebook page. There's a couple of Facebook pages there. Join both of them. Uh, we hang out with uh, those guys. They are our brothers in Christ, and uh, we're very, very much uh, connected at the, the hip. Uh, you can also uh, go over to Reformed Reasons, which is my blog, which is not getting a, as much attention lately as it probably should. But uh, at any rate, you can uh, leave a question there, interact with us. Facebook's probably the best place to do this. Um, and we'd be happy to, uh, to answer any questions that, uh, that you might have. So keep the faith, stay in the fight, continue to glorify God, be the light and that God has called you to be and continue to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take care. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. So bye bye.
famous American pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die Did you write 